Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast hosted by Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. Today's guest is Rebecca Walker, Rebecca founded Kaplan and Walker LLP, which is a well-known compliance and ethics law firm. She has always been in private practice and is really well-known in the ENC community for her, her leadership in evolving our function into a more holistic and round, well-rounded one. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us for what you've done. And it's always fun to see you at events and to listen to you speak. So with that, can you tell us how you got to this point, and you've been in this field for over 20 years, which is a really long time in this ethics and compliance community. Tell us how you got here. First of all, thank you, Lisa, for having me on your podcast. I am a big fan of the podcast, and I'm so happy to be here. And I want to take just a second to thank you and Mary for the work that you're doing with this. I think it's a terrific contribution to our profession, and I appreciate it. But And also, thank you for your question. How did I get here? It's sort of always fun to talk about the past and our paths. I was, I think, really fortunate to fall into the compliance profession. I started my professional life as a litigator, and I was doing primarily white-collar criminal defense work. It turned out that I was not particularly well-suited to litigation. Fighting battles for others is a noble job. I truly admire those lawyers who do it and who do it well. But I found the sort of combative nature of that world hard on a personal level. The good news is that work led me to compliance because even way back in the 90s, when we were defending companies in the context of government investigations or regulatory enforcement actions, we were trying to showcase their compliance programs and demonstrate that they were good citizen corporations. And so the work that I was doing in the context of defending companies, which introduced me to compliance, really led to, to my career now. I love the proactive, preventive nature of compliance. It was a nice contrast to the combative nature of litigation, and I was just drawn to it, and I was very fortunate. I was able to move into the compliance law practice group at Skadden Arts. And I think Skadden was probably one of the only big law firms that had a compliance practice group back in the 90s. It was a very small group. It was me and the partner who headed the practice, Dan Fryer, who was a lovely mentor to me and a real pioneer in our field. And that, that's how I came to be. Well, it's amazing. And over all those years, the profession has really evolved. And from what happened then to what's been happening now. And one of my favorite things about when you and I get a chance to chat and when we did, when we talked about getting ready for this is there are about 20 different things where we kept saying we're top of mind and in all of which are really important in putting together a program as a whole, especially going back to this theme of being holistic. And one of the things as a starting point we're talking about and that you've been thinking about a lot lately are risk assessments because they are critically important for programs generally and having a strong ethics and compliance program. I'm going to start with like my big basic question, and then you can answer and tell everybody what we really need to know. My one thing that I think about a lot is, you know, do you assess, if you have a significant risk, do you have to do an, a risk assessment if you already know it's there? 
how do you work that in there or do you fix first and assess later? That is a great question. I would say typically I would advise that somebody fix first and <laughs> assess later. If you know that there are concerns, that there are gaps in your program that need immediate or prompt remediation, I think you want to move to fix those as quickly as possible. The value of a risk assessment is what we can do in putting the results of that assessment to use. If you already know what the gaps are, I think it makes really good sense to remediate and then go back and assess your remediation. Yeah, that's, I was thinking about that because sometimes everyone says, well, the first step is a risk assessment. And I think, but if you didn't have a anonymous whistleblower hotline, or if you have yet to put together a due diligence program, do you really need to assess that's a gap? That's the thing that I think it's it, those things to me. And everyone says the first step is always a risk assessment. So that was no. one of the reasons. That's a great point. And I do work with a lot of companies that are just putting a program together. So either maybe they're a new company. I just did an, a lovely project with a company that's internet company, but also in the medical world. And we had to put the program together. Program charter, code of conduct, hotline, all, <laughs> all of those basics, those had to be in place as quickly as we could get them in place. And as Anyone who is in-house knows or anyone who helps people in-house knows resources are always an issue. And so you have to prioritize. And in that case, we went straight to blocking and tackling. I think that's the, the football analogy. We went straight there and then we went back and did the assessment and thought about the risk profile next. I was a very dedicated Buffalo Bills fan in case no one on this podcast knows that could be a little, might be a good year, so it could be a little insufferable for people. But with that said, it is the assessing of the weak, of, of those weaknesses. But I do find sometimes people just don't even think about what they need to do first because they're looking at these are these steps we think about. So let me, about this, like when you are doing a risk assessment, let's just start at the very beginning, assuming you're now at a point where that's the right thing to do. How do you start and then how do you build on to using the, this risk assessment? Does it have to be super formal? What do you think about that? In your example, you could have you could characterize that almost as we're going to do an extremely high level risk assessment where maybe we're it's just a couple of the compliance person and the head lawyer in a room and figure out what the gaps are. You could characterize that as a risk assessment. So there are all there are lots of variations on risk assessment. And I really think that in deciding what let's say an organization has done the big primary blocking and tackling, they have a program in place, they have their hotline, they're ready to move forward to really think holistically about their risk profile, how you approach that is going to depend to some extent, on the needs of the organization and the culture of the organization. And I know that probably sounds like a lawyer's answer, but I do I do think it's true because there are lots of variations on risk assessment and you want to choose the one that's going to work best for your organization. For example, a lot of organizations use surveys where they ask a number of folks in the organization to rate risks based on likelihood and probability and velocity. And they might have a one through five scale and they might ask a hundred people or more throughout the organization to engage in this process of rating risks. And then they have data and they can start with that data. They can put it on a lovely colorful chart. And now they have what looks like a risk profile for the organization. And that can be really useful for certain types of organizations. 
I did, I did a risk assessment recently with a big engineering and construction firm, and they loved that approach where we were using data and starting with that. So it is helpful for some organizations. It's not necessary for all organizations, and it's a formal process. So if you don't have an organization that will have an appetite for that level of formality and that type of process, then that's probably not the, that probably shouldn't be the starting point for the risk assessment. But there are lots of other pieces to it. And please interject, Lisa, if I'm rambling on for too long. But <laughs> I have a follow-up for you in a second. But there that to me, that's it. A help that can be helpful depending on the organization, but that's not the meat of the assessment. For me, as if I'm conducting a risk assessment, it's really the interview process that gives me the most important information that the organization that I will then utilize to put in my report and the organization will utilize, hopefully, to move their program forward when I'm conducting interviews, I can ask people one-on-one, what do you think the highest level of risks are? How would you rate, what do you, how well do you think controls are working with respect to each of those areas? Where are there opportunities to improve? If you're thinking about all the legal and compliance risks, where do you think the organization should offer training uh, next year? Where do you think employees would most benefit? So really digging in one-on-one with senior leaders, with function leaders on their perceptions of risk and their perceptions of where controls, where the compliance team should focus in terms of enhancing controls. That to me is the most valuable part of a risk assessment. And one of my follow-ups about that is I also think that the interviews are more valuable, but I think in words more than data clusters anyway. Me too. (laughs) But I also think that also helps because that's the mindset in some organizations of doing that. And one of the things for me is that it's really important to basically target the way you do any sort of assessment to your audiences, and even if they're different. So one of the things that just brought to mind for me is You have a lot of different parts of organizations, whether it's a terminal audit, a risk function, others doing risk assessments. I was just thinking as you spoke, what do you think about trying to incorporate what you're doing into some of the other functions, risk assessments, basically to avoid the minus side is you might not have everything in there that you want. The plus side is you don't get everyone saying we just did three risk assessments, come back next year, which I also understand. People have to do their jobs. They can't spend all day talking about compliance risks unless you're in compliance. (laughs) So yes, I think you absolutely should consider how you can build on the work that internal audit is doing, that if you have an enterprise risk function, the work that they're doing to how you can incorporate those things into your risk assessment process, how they might be able to utilize the work that you're doing in their risk assessment process. Absolutely. How you'll approach that is going to vary depending on what kind of who's conducting risk assessments in your organization, what kind of risk assessment they're conducting. I have one client that for the compliance manager goes with internal audit to every risk assessment interview and focus group that internal audit is conducting and gets about 10 minutes to ask compliance related questions. And so they're not there's not an entirely distinct compliance risk assessment process, but compliance is contributing, they're listening, and they're asking their own questions for each one of those interviews and focus groups. So there are lots of ways that one could go about it. I think it's absolutely essential (laughs) that these functions are collaborating and communicating because otherwise somebody's going to, yeah, try to to put a stop to all the risk assessments at the organization. (laughs) 
be fair, I can understand that after a while because to me, I mean, there's nothing more frustrating when I get three or four different surveys that seem somewhat related to me and to the experts in those areas, they're completely different. So I get that. I also think, and it is depending on what the risk profile and the change of risk profiles for your company, that becomes critically important as well. I can say Pearson, where I work 15 years ago, or even maybe 10 before I was there, it was mostly selling real textbooks, the ones that people my age remember carrying like a whole bunch when they were super heavy. Now, textbooks are probably on everyone's iPad. So what is the change in you know, sales processes, sales, gifts, hospitality, the data issues, the how they're used, that to us, if we were still sticking with all the same things as 10 years ago to look at as risks, I would be missing something. And none of what I'm saying now is confidential because that's what's going on in the business. Do you help companies adapt to that as well? So adapting to changing business profiles. Absolutely. And I think that the beauty of a risk assessment as opposed to a program assessment, and the two do tend to bleed together a bit, certainly in my practice, they're, they can sometimes be hard to distinguish because as you're thinking about a program, you're thinking about how it is mitigating the risks to that particular organization. And so program assessments to some extent have to consider risks and risk assessments have to consider controls. So they can overlap significantly. The beauty of a risk assessment as opposed to a program assessment is that you really, if you're if you're digging in and conducting an effective risk assessment, you are thinking about the business, right? You are, that is your opportunity to get in there and better understand how the business creates the goods or services, what are the inputs, how does it sell them, all of the different where it sells them, <laughs> where it creates them. Every facet of the business is going to create risk to the organization. And when you're conducting a risk assessment, it's a great opportunity to become a bigger part of the strategic elements of your organization, I think, because you're talking with senior leadership and with functions, legal and compliance risks that relate to the operations that they're conducting. And it can give you an opportunity to weigh in on what those legal and compliance risks are, and to help build business processes, not just legal and compliance procedures, but also business and operational processes that mitigate legal and compliance. I hope that wasn't too theoretical. No, actually, that that resonates a lot with me, especially thinking again about the distinctions between a program assessment and a risk assessment, because I think sometimes many of us confuse the two or conflate them. So yeah. it, it makes it a little less theoretical to think about that. I talked about this a little, but do you see a best approach for risk assessments? Or again, is that more of a tailored? Is there a general versus a tailored aspect to it? Yeah, I do. I think that there is tailored. I've conducted risk assessments where we didn't do any ratings of risk. We just conducted interviews. We did talk with each interviewee about their perceptions of highest level risks, the what keep you up what keeps you up at night kind of questions. And I like to even show each interviewee, even if we're not asking them to rate one through five, to show each interviewee a list of legal and compliance risks. Maybe it could be as simple as the table of contents from your code of conduct, but just to help them understand the scope mm -hmm. of risks that you're talking about. As you said, Lisa, there are all kinds of risk assessments going on at the organization and it's kind of, you can it, you need to take a second to get your interviewee focused on what you're talking about when you're talking about legal and compliance risks what are what is the scope of that of the risks there so it can vary but i would say 
for uh, risk assessment, at least in my view, and there might be differing opinions on this, it's the interviews that are critically important. So I think for me, the most important thing, the thing that that is a constant across the risk assessments that I conduct, it is a robust interview process that that makes them good and it makes all the difference. Without that, I don't know that you could, or at least from my perspective, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that I had done an effective risk assessment. I think you need to talk to people. I think some people really want to put everything on a piece of paper, but I don't think that ultimately, I shouldn't say a piece of paper. I should say it's on your computer. Basically, check the box, put in the dots, write a comment if you feel like it. You know, one of the things now, as we talk about risk assessments, is risk obviously means that you're bringing up weaknesses and concerns in your program, which may become larger scale things. And while we're trying to fix them, the question of privilege with risk assessments is a really interesting one to me. First of all, can you use it? And as a follow-up, when should you, you know, whether maintaining versus whether it's the right thing to do, it just seems like, it's, it, and sorry for the non-lawyers who really hate law talk, this is an important, I think this is one time to be bring in the lawyer talk a little bit because I think privilege can either help or hurt me. Yeah, I think it's a critically important question to ask in the beginning because you want to set expectations and you can't really assert the privilege after the fact. Anyway, so um, give that some thought. I know that in our community, there's sometimes some tension between law and ethics or compliance and ethics between compliance lawyers and compliance professionals. I do think that conducting risk assessments under the privilege can be very helpful. I prefer if I'm conducting a risk assessment to conduct it under the attorney-client privilege for a couple of reasons. First, as a compliance lawyer, and this is maybe this is too personal a reason, but one of my worst nightmares as a prof- as a compliance professional is that I inadvertently create a document that's going to hurt my client. That's going to hurt the client that will then hurt the compliance program. This was maybe something I thought about more when I was younger and compliance wasn't as well established a profession, but I would have nightmares of being on a witness stand being asked about whether an organization knew about its compliance risks because, you know, and didn't take my advice or those are the nightmares. And I want to protect against that. I was always worried that I would create a document that might come back to hurt the company in the context of litigation or an investigation, which would then hurt the compliance program because yeah. senior leadership would want to shut it down because it was perceived as being harmful. Probably too personal, but that's always been one of my scares. And I do think there's this interesting tension in the profession between sort of the lawyers and others. And the lawyers, there's a perception that the lawyers are going to want to circle the wagon. We are not going to want to get to the bottom of issues. We're just going to want to defend as opposed to remediate. But I think that where the privilege is useful is it can provide some breathing room for companies to deal with issues. And that's why I like it for risk assessment in particular, because you are exploring the legal and compliance risks that impact an organization. You want everyone to be open and honest and transparent about that. Senior leaders are gonna feel more comfortable. And I can tell you this, because I've conducted a lot of risk assessments and I've talked to a lot of CEOs and CFOs and audit committee chairs in the context of risk assessments, they talk about the fact that what they're getting ready to tell me is protected by the attorney-client privilege before they tell the story. And so I know that it's top of mind for them in terms of talking through 
legal and compliance risks. And I think I get a better picture, which gives my client, the company, a better picture of what the risk profile truly is. If folks feel comfort that what they tell me is not then going to be used against the organization in litigation or investigation. So there's that, which I think is, is helpful. I will say, after having said all that, it is not clear if, God forbid, it's ever challenged, and I ever am, God forbid, on that witness stand, the, the case law is not super clear on this topic, right? It could be that a judge looks at this and says, I appreciate the fact that you're a lawyer, but this was business advice that you were giving to the organization, not legal advice, and so we're not going to, we're not going to protect, we're not, I'm not going to allow it to be protected. However, there is some, I think, good case law and good wisdom behind understanding that organizations are entitled to legal advice in order to comply with the law, in order to seek advice for compliance purposes, not just in the context of litigation, for example. Yeah, and I think it's it's also complicated when you bring other other geographies in and how they have different differing privilege laws, which are much more limited. I often talk to people in Europe who don't think about privileges being particular. I explained that in the U.S. we think of privilege the way they think of data privacy. Like it doesn't occur to them that they don't have that. In the U.S., we're the opposite. I also think it is important that to give people the confidence to be able to talk about and raise concerns. I also think that down the line, if it turns out that it becomes more of a business discussion, it's privilege is never going to be absolute. And if it's eventually, it's better to have it sometimes than lose it than to never have it uh, have asserted it, particularly if it makes people feel more comfortable speaking. But the other, and so I think the follow-up, I think about that as well is once you get done with all this privilege or not, you have your risks. First of all, you then have an obligation to do something about those risks. You can't put everything under privilege and then not address it. So how do you, once you come up with your, complete your risk assessment, how do you assess it and then prioritize the particular risks? Yeah. So yes. Yeah. So then the nice thing about the risk ratings is it really does give you a data. It, it gives you a basis for how you're prioritizing other than just your conversations with folks, which I do. It's nice to have that to be able to rationalize and justify the conclusions that you make. Typically, no one's surprised that particular areas are top of the list for any given organization, but it's still nice to have those data points to, to fall back on. But so the nice thing about having that kind of risk profile is that you can then use that to educate senior leadership and the board and just help them understand the, the compliance program itself. There's the, there've been some recent cases related to boards of directors oversight duties with respect to an organization's compliance program. And in particular, looking at a board's duty to oversee compliance in high risk areas for the organization. And so having conducted a risk assessment and being briefed on the results of that risk assessment, I think are really helpful to being able to support your board's oversight and senior leadership's oversight of the compliance program. So there's that. But more importantly, you then have this lovely list and prioritization of risks and some op some hopefully through the interview process, some nice opportunities for improvement that have been discussed with interviewees and vetted. And ultimately what you want for a risk assessment is to enhance your program, move your program forward. So you use that to make your training plan for the next couple of years and your communications plan to, to build your compliance audit plan to figure out where you have opportunities to move the program forward. And most companies 
that I work with create a little project management plan following a risk assessment or following a program assessment. And they just use that to map out where they're going to take their program. That's really helpful. We all need to keep our map and then remember to look at it. I think one of the things that happens many days, I have five things on a list that need to get done. At the end of the day, five things may have gotten done. They may not actually align. Other things always come up. That's compliance. You've mentioned a couple of times talking, you started your career at Skadden and you've been in law firms. And can you talk a little bit about what took you from big law to starting your own law Yes. Uh, so I enjoyed my time at Skadden. I learned a tremendous amount. It, they were supportive and helpful, but it was back in the early 2000s and there were a lot of demands associated with big firm life. I had young children at the time. And I also found that it was difficult to develop my own practice at Skadden. That was because Every time I had a potential new client and I was so excited to be able to potentially work with this oil and gas company or consumer products company, there would inevitably be conflicts because Skadden already represented their biggest competitor or there were always concerns with creating your own practice in a big law firm. And the conflicts issues that bedevil big firms who are in every aspect of legal practice are slightly different from the conflicts issues that I have to worry about as a compliance lawyer. So I just had, I found it difficult to start my own, to build my own practice while at a big law firm. And so I, I just, I truly, Lisa, it, I felt like I was walking off a cliff <laughs> to leave this lovely, safe place where I always had work to do and, and to go out on my own. It was very scary. It really was. And I'm surprised looking back that I had the courage to do it, but I'm so glad <laughs> that I did have the courage. It, it was frightening. I remember my husband went out and bought me a file cabinet. It was like $300. It was back when we actually had paper and we actually put them in files and inside file cabinets. And I said to him, you should not have spent $300 on this file cabinet. I might not make $300 in my practice. Literally, it was that scary to me. Fortunately, I managed to pay for the file cabinet and it all worked out. It kept your career going. Did you, you mentioned about having young children and that, but also were there any other things you find looking back at it, being a woman doing this, especially in the 2000s, which I can't believe I now say the 2000s. So sure. Having young children at the time when I started my practice, it was very difficult because you didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable saying no to any client. You always wanted to say yes. And you always wanted to be your very best. I was also, by the way, one of the pioneers of working from home. I'm doing this call right now from the same office I've been working in for a long time, 18, 20 years. And I remember when my daughter, who is now 21, was three, I got a call from my biggest, most important client, this lovely consumer products company, fabulous compliance team. I was so happy to be working from them. And my daughter, my three-year-old daughter picked up the phone. And this was well before lawyers worked around were admitted to having children. So, so I was mortified. I was so upset. And I grabbed the phone from Emma and answered it. And he was so lovely. He said to me, Oh my goodness, you they're just hiring assistants younger and younger these days. Fine. But those were those were it was scarier back then. It was obviously well pre-pandemic. And you know, there was an image that we felt we had to maintain. Fortunately, yeah. that's changed a lot. Thank goodness. But that made it more difficult. Yeah. 
even for the, those of us who were women in big law firms in the 90s, early 2000s as well, without children, it was a balancing that, I, that we all had to do. And you know, as I mentioned, there was always the, I said this before, the issue of I would feel obligated to help out more because of my friends who had kids. And on the other hand, then I would feel like, I, like why does nobody see my whatever I was planning to do that night as valuable? So it's always been a challenge, I think, for women balancing those things and the perceptions of it. Where I think men definitely have that one easier. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, I feel like compliance as a profession, we as a profession kind of came into our own as women lawyers were coming yeah. into their own. And I think that's part of the reason that so many fabulous women lawyers and women compliance professionals have gravitated to this profession. There's so much about it that I think is well suited to women professionals. And it's it the sort of collaborative nature of the profession, the relational nature of the profession. There's a lot that as a mother, I am able to use in my parenting and vice versa in a way that I think is really healthy and makes for a more holistic life. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for this and for taking the time with me today. This is, Mary has one more interview and then we're finishing, even though it seems like way past the time, what we call our summer semester, it ends right as the actual season ends. So thank you so much for being my final guest during this time and on behalf of Mary, me, Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.